welcome everybody. Um, we don't have a whole lot on the go today, so it could be a shorter show, um, which I think is fine from time to time. Uh, and of course, the discussion always gets going, so it often lasts a full hour anyway. Um, but today we're going to talk a little bit about composing um, and arranging and setting up sets and stuff for pipe bands. And there are no definitive answers as to what the best process is for this. Um, but, um, you know, be sure to type in and, and let us know what works for your band and so on and so forth. Um, I think Carl's out there. Are you out there, Carl? Illustrious co-host for today. Maybe Indeed not. I am. Oh, there he is. Um, Carl, tell us your thoughts about how to pick the right material and, and the whole process of getting things going. Because you, you've done a few bands in the past, and uh, let me know how what that was like for you. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely um, a, a challenging thing. So you want to pick material that's going to be challenging for your members, but not unattainable. Uh, so you want to pick music that's that's going to push them in, in their weaknesses, but not uh, be a liability for you. Um, you know, come either competition time or or you know, parade season if that's what you're um, preparing for. And uh, so I, I mean, wh what I did when I took over the the Iona band is we we did a lot of of learning of material. And it was more basic material, but we increased the repertoire almost, um, uh, we almost doubled it. And I found for, for a parade band, that worked pretty well. The material wasn't necessarily too much harder, but we worked on a bunch of new material to help people build new skills. Um, and then picking stuff for a competition band, um, I think the, the same things kind of applies, is, is you've got to pick appropriate music that's going to work well for your members, play to their strengths and also challenge their weaknesses, but not to a level that's going to um, make you uncompetitive. Right. Um, one of the things that I experienced uh, recently was, um, you know, we have, we have some of our students, which, you know, I work with on a regular basis, um, and I know how talented they are. And, and again, this isn't so much about a band, but just about this topic. Um, I'm pretty familiar with how talented they are and what their potential is. Um, and I was criticized for giving them music that was too difficult last year. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think one of the rewarding things is, like you said, I mean, uh, I knew they were capable of it. Yes, it was going to require some extra hard work and for things to come through. Um, and sure enough, um, the students did put in the work and they did figure out how to make good music out of the slightly more challenging material, and they're a better player as as a result, right? So I think in that the, case, the top of the prize lists, right? Well, and they were at the they were at the top of the prize list when they played well, and when they played poorly, they weren't, right? Which is, um, you know, which is not necessarily true. If you give somebody an easy tune, right, they might always be kind of like you know, uh, in the prize, like, you know, towards the bottom of the prize list or something, you know, like you're going to be able to get with, with material that's not as challenging. Um, I think it's harder to reap the big reward, even though you might more easily make the list. I think that's another thing to think about too. Um, which, 
which I think is interesting. And so, you know, I guess let's uh, apply this to pipe bands. I think that's the same sort of thing. I mean, material definitely has to push the group, and it has to be challenging. Um, and, uh, yeah, and Ian's sort of saying it sounds like a cost-benefit analysis, and you're totally right. Um, and then I think so it has to be challenging, but it has to also be attainable, or you have to have a specific plan in order to attain things. And, uh, you know, that's just a general strategy as far as, you know, what sort of tunes to pick. I think another big, I think another big question mark is how creative do we be relative to how, uh, what's the word, um, understandable or something like that? Like there's the, there's a fine line between what's too creative and what the, you know, and what the judges would never understand as well. Andy says, you need to occasionally check your ROL. Oh, return on investment. Gotcha. ROI. Good one there. Yeah. So and then the other question in regards to picking material is, do we play all sorts of new fancy stuff? Do we play old traditional stuff? Or what's the mix? I feel like that's a delicate balance, too, in any grade level. I think the I my personal strategy is um, that um, you want to you need to be as recognizable as possible uh, to the judges. Or that's my personal strategy. Although I, I sometimes drastically deviate from that, um, but there needs to be big elements of familiarity in what you're playing if you're competing. That is, and I think if anything, we we know the parade phenomenon too. So even if you're just a performance band. The crowd will go wild for Stars and Stripes forever. Well, if you play something technically demanding that they're not that familiar with, the crowd response is also less. So I think there's a definite element of... I think there's a definite element of... Um, the familiarity element, I think, is, is a big thing when it comes to... Uh, it sounds like I want to put motivation on some sort of spreadsheet. You're right. Yes, those anyone who knows me knows I am a little bit of a spreadsheet-aholic. Can't help it. Um, yeah, exactly. You should see some of the stuff I've done with spreadsheets. It would make you roll your eyes. Like, um, just as a brief tangent, um, you could predict band practice attendance using a spreadsheet and then assigning a probability to each member that they'll actually show. And then you come out with almost exactly how many people will be there. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, how do we pick the good tunes? How do we arrange these tunes properly? Okay. Um, what sort of elements go into arranging tunes? What order do they go in? What's the best order for a set of tunes? Let's start with that question. I'll throw that out into the audience. What would your strategy be for what, let's say you have three tunes that you want to play, or four, maybe you have four tunes for a March medley. What order do you pick? Ian, I didn't major in statistics. However, I did take AP statistics in high school, and I have to admit I, I liked it to an unhealthy degree, and I wish I would studied harder and retained more of it. Okay, Andy says, it might de depend on what key the tunes are in. 
So let's say we have um, two major tunes, two minor tunes. Are you going to start major or minor? What's the strategy there? And, and obviously there's no rule here. I'm just, uh, let me know what you think would be the best thing. Gary says, if, if an individual is not bought into the music when it offers him, blah, 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 personal growth should lead to focus and ultimately increase in performance. Yes, Gary, agreed. John says, always put the B minor tune second or third. Andy says, major, minor, major. Definitely, uh, those are good strategies, right? So as much as minor tunes are really, really cool sounding, uh, one of the things that uh, Terry Lee and I worked a lot on together when uh, I would have the opportunity to work on SFU stuff uh, with him, you know, one of the big things I always pushed for was I wanted the cool, modern, you know, uh, um, dark sounding tunes to go at the end. And of course, he was adamant that that would not be strategically good, right? That that ending on major key will, you know, always be better than ending on a minor key. And, and I have to say that conceptually, strategically, I agree. And Andy's definitely with that here. John is sort of pointing at that as well, which is that um, as cool as minor tunes are, it's often in your best interest to start and end on a minor key. Although with that said, um, the SFU pipe end has often been successful with a minor key intro tune. Um, and it wouldn't be B minor because B minor is especially haunting. But some of these tunes, you know, right? Some of these minor key, the A minor tunes, some of the more haunting notes are um, not quite as prominent, but it's still got that sort of aggressive attack sound. Um, you know, a lot of bands in the lower grades love to open with this tune. Right? Which sort of um, which sort of has that that minor key aggressive sound to it. So I wouldn't say I don't think it's um, and again there are no rules here, um, but we just always have to be weighing the pros and cons. Uh, here's another major consideration. Here's a tip that I would extend when it comes to arranging tunes, which is Always put the most challenging tune first uh, in a set of tunes. So, you know, especially March medleys. I mean, obviously, when we get into MSRs, all of those tunes are going to be challenging. But if you're in the lower grades and you have a set of marches that you're going to play, and, or even if you're on parade, put the most difficult tune in the set first. Now, why might that be, I wonder? Steve says, how do you know what key a tune is in when you look at it? That's a great question. Um, I will, um, I'll address that in a few moments there, Steve. And he says, don't want to end on a bad note. Play the weaker tune in the beginning. You can relax for the end. Yep. To get it out of the way. And that's sort of true. Um, is it not true that judges tend to judge more aggressively initially? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, so, and then the other reason that you should always put the most difficult tune first is that inevitably the first tune in the set is the one that gets the most practice time. 
It's just the way that it is. For example, those of us who play solos know the first part of the march always sounds great. And then the later parts are where we start to lose it. Um, it's because it's harder to focus because we're getting fatigued and we've practiced it less. Okay, so the first tune in the set inevitably gets the most practice time. And then the other thing is judges do judge most aggressively at the beginning. And as a, um, as a judge, I can speak to that, right? The first impression is the most important. So, um, and you might say, well, why would we want to play the tune with the greatest liability first? Well, it's because you're going to be able to pull it off. Everyone's going to be fresh, focused. They're going to have all the adrenaline they need. Um, and, and you're going to work on it the most. So your, your sort of showcase, flashy, um, you know, fundamentally awesome piece is going to be first. And yeah, it is a little harder. Uh, but then after that, right, you and the judge will be able to relax because we all know, okay, we got through the hard part and the judge will say, wow, that was really impressive. And then they, you know, and then a judge will kind of relax and just work to enjoy the performance. And as long as nothing goes terribly wrong, in some of the easier stuff, I think you're going to be fine. So I think these things are all true. And that's, that's why I'm always going to put the most difficult tune first. By the way, the other thing that's true, and this, I'm speaking especially about March medleys, uh, because in the lower grades we play that quite a bit, is the, the hardest tune, here's another big one, is that the hardest tune um, will also be the slowest as far as what you're able to do tempo-wise. Okay, so, um, and as we know, we can, we can uh, consciously ramp up the tempo as the set goes, and that's a great way, you know, if, as long as it's under control, that's a great way to increase the excitement is to sort of kick the tempo up a notch. Um, it's very hard to kick the tempo up a notch if we're also transitioning to a tune that's much harder. So we start with the hardest, uh, you know, conservative tempo type tunes at the beginning, then a little easier, then a little easier. And then the last tune, um, as we pointed out, it's great for the last tune to be major key, very simple to play, where your players can just focus on producing a really great tone. Um, drummers can focus on just producing a really cool sound and groove. And like you said, as long as you've done well so far, the judges aren't going to be overly critical about how easy that last tune is. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, and all these thoughts make sense. Players will be more focused at the beginning. That's generally true, certainly younger players. Um, older, more experienced players, you, you know, will be trained to keep the focus for the entire performance. Fatigue is a big one, too. I mean, I think so many pipers especially become physically and mentally fatigued after a few minutes. Um, Gary says, as the judge is more relaxed and trying to now enjoy the performance, the same will probably be true of the band. Absolutely. Okay, so, so there's my, uh, one of my big tips of the day there, which is when it comes to arranging the order of tunes, make sure the most demanding material comes first. Now, granted, the material might be pretty similar in ability level throughout. I think there's something to be said for making sure that there are some simpler, more melodic, wide open tunes that you can put at the end um, that are pretty, pretty simple and you can just rock out to. Questions or co comments so far?
Um, let me uh, make sure I'm not missing anything. Um, we were hoping Mike Eagle could be by today, but he's unfortunately traveling down to Brooklyn, so um, he's not able to tune in so far today. Um, the next thing we could touch briefly on is um, how to organize the process of all this uh, between drummers and pipers. And Andy can answer some drumming questions too. Awesome. Perfect. Andy says, when you pick tunes for Oren Moore, who is involved? Uh, great question. The answer is um, usually a wide variety of people will bring ideas to the table um, and they have to sort of um, they have to sort of face the uh, the chopping block with me usually. That's sort of the process. So uh, people will come to the table and then I'll challenge them with certain things like are we really going to be able to execute that section well as a group? And then if you know um, and I, I just sort of play the devil's advocate, you know, is the judge, what's the judge really going to think when we play this? Is that section too cheesy? So, and then, so when we pick tunes for or and more competition sets, you know, um, a lot of people, I'll ask for ideas to be brought to the table when the timing is right. Um, ideas will be brought forward and then, um, you know, and then we sort of discuss them and, and we try and think of competitively you know, what the pros and cons of each one, you know, is going to be. A lot of times there are some really awesome tunes and they just contain certain sections that are just not in our best interest to try uh, to tackle, um, you know, when we have other things. For example, that's why certainly in the short run we won't be playing Pretty Marion, you know, because the, the burl technique is so advanced in that tune and the particular players in our band well, it's possible we could teach them and everyone could practice that. Um, it's more important to me that we practice other more basic fundamentals before we get into some of this highly specialized stuff. Okay. Meanwhile, you take a tune like Mrs. McPherson of Inveran, which most grade one bands would, you know, at our, at our level, for lack of a better terminology there, most of the grade one bands, you know, in our um, sort of playing level would, would be afraid to tackle that tune. Um, it plays to our strengths which is a really well set up pipe sound, um, you know, open, clear playing, uh, consistent, uh, consistent execution of embellishments. Um, and so, the, and, and we feel like that tune's relatively to, to easy to teach in the sort of dojo slash or and more fundamental skill set, um, which is how that tune ended up in our repertoire and, and it continues to be a good tune for us. Um, you know, even though um, in, you know, and it, it sort of, it's a good pick for us because it plays to our strengths and it's different from what other people are doing. And it's a tune that's really well recognized by judges. So, you know, as long as nothing goes <laughs> terribly wrong, which sometimes it does, that's a really good tune for us. Okay. Right, exactly. Andy says, the return on investment doesn't make sense for Pretty Marion yet, right? Um, and then eventually, someday it will when we, you know, and, and you see, you'll see bands like Field Marshall and SFU playing Pretty Marion, which for them, it's a great return on investment because they've mastered those other fundamentals to such a high degree. Now they can put these burls in there. They can focus on those fundamentals. I think a lot of those things are just automatic based on the quality of and experience of players that they have in their sections. Um, so they're going to be able to rock that out. Now, I know it seems like I'm speaking at a really high level about this, but it, you know, apply it to whatever level you're at. It's, it's the same sort of thing. Okay. Play to your strengths. 
if you have really good uh, tonal quality in your band, um, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel, you know, by playing really complicated material. Play to those strengths. Pick tunes that sound really good uh, with a really well-tuned group, and you'll be rewarded. Um, so, Andy, really good question. Let's talk about the drum score writing process and just sort of the process of releasing this material. Um, one of the big challenges with drum scores is you can't write the drum score until the uh, piping scores are finalized. Um, at least generally speaking, that's true. Um, and so uh, how do we get around that problem? And then the other big problem is um, that the midsection scores can't get written, at least typically, traditionally, the midsection scores aren't going to be written until the snare scores are written, which won't be written until the piping scores are written. So there's that sort of that sort of pecking order. Now, I have a couple of thoughts about that, and I know I'm uh, conveying a few things from um, Michael Eagle in this as well. But the first thing uh, that absolutely must happen is uh, the pipers have to get the music out uh, for their uh, for the music. It has to happen really fast. It has to be a top priority. Um, and you know, every day that the drum scores aren't being thought about or aren't being written are days that are going to be wasted where, where people in the band aren't going to be able to develop. So those pipe scores have to be written, and uh, they, you have to sort of go for it. Right. Andy is totally right. Pipe majors have trouble keeping this in mind. Um, or if, it, if it's anything like me, I mean, it, it is a little bit time-consuming to write out a tune, and the big challenge is what, what changes are we going to make to these tunes later, which will require, like, you know, in large part, a big redo. Yes, exactly. And then pipers, we can find music all over the place, but then drummers, traditionally anyway, either need to find or write their own scores, which takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And there's a difference there, and uh, the leadership of the group has to be sensitive to that. Um, and so, you know, going back to our strategic planning session that we've had a couple weeks ago, um, strategic planning meaning we need to set a deadline for all of the piping scores to be done um, so that the snare score can have a deadline for all that to be done so that the midsection stuff can then be written. Yeah. Gary says, it's time to play my drumming recording with, Vince, with Vin Janowski. Yeah, well, I'll take it easy on him. He's not here to defend himself. And then Roger says, the drum score needs to be written to the specific settings being played. Absolutely right, Roger. So um, there are different settings of pipe tunes, too. So a lot of times, we can't just copy and paste someone else's score into our band. No matter what happens, there are always going to be tweaks that need to be made. Yes, I agree with everybody. Everybody is right here. So Andy says the structure of the tune is also very important. Right, exactly. It's sort of the cut and paste, and uh, the cut and paste approach is a little bit tricky. Yeah, exactly. With that said, I, I also see a lot of, I also see a lot of, 
you know, and this is just an opinion, I also see a lot of overthinking it um, in, in drum cores of all levels as well, like overcomplicating the drum score because they're too obsessed with, you know, the exact intricacies and, and trying to exactly match the melody of a bagpipe tune. Like, I, I think we can go, I think you can go the other way too, Andy, and maybe you agree, which is, you know, you take this tune and, and it magically requires like an entirely new approach and um, a whole strange slew of notes. Like there is something to be said for developing a nice pattern um, that's predictable as well. So, so it's, I think that as well is sort of a delicate balance. You know, how exactly are we obsessed with how perfectly the score fits the exact melody versus, um, you know, how do we know when we've gone too far the other way? Like, you know, I think it's fair to say competitively, it's probably not a great idea to just play the 2-4 and 3-4 standard. It's probably, probably not in your best interest. So it's some delicate balance in between. Um, the other thing I was going to say, which um, is really cool that Mike Eagle is really involved in, is he, uh, we, we get around the problem of um, needing the snare scores to be finished before the midsection stuff is written. The way we get around that problem is he composes all three at the same time. So, so each phrase and each part of music is conceived with the bass and tenor in mind. Um, and he uses the finale software um, so that all of that stuff gets written at once, which is, which is a huge, uh, which is a huge thing because it saves a lot of time and it gets the midsection up and running a lot faster. Because the other thing is um, the way the way that we used to do it, like, and I know at least when I was in SFU, the process was um, it wasn't just pipe score, then drum score, then midsection. But then it was also the midsection then has to write the flourishes and stuff on top of that. So that's a fourth step. And that can take months, you know, to really do a top-notch job with that. And I remember it was always a struggle, um, you know, when it came to writing tons of material. And so we can cut out one of those steps there if the, uh, yeah, and then Tracy's saying it's frustrating for tenors. It absolutely is. Right? Let's say it's a, at the minimum, let's say it takes a week for each step. One, two, three, four. So that means the tenor drummers, when it comes to flourishing, are not going to have the full flourishing score until a month after the pipers get the music. And then the pipers are like, hey, tenors, what the heck? How come you don't know that? And then that, that gets frustrating and, and the band slows down. So that's a, big, that's a big logistical thing to think about when it comes to composing. How do we keep that process as efficient as possible? Uh, we've got a few things we do in OR&MORE. For example, I don't just write out the pipe score. Uh, I write out the pipe score in Finale software, and then I send Mike the Finale file, and he composes largely using Finale. We leave out the whole paper and pencil uh, part of it, which... Um, it, would, it takes time to learn the software. Luckily, he and I are both uh, former music, university music students and composers, so uh, we know Finale pretty well. So for us, it's a great system. It cuts down on the time rapidly. Um, and then we can also release stuff, and I think, I think we've showed you guys stuff like this before. Let me just bring it up on the old screen, Aru, here. 
Um, it would be something like a band score. Let's see if I can come up with anything here. Let's see if let's see if this is what I think it is. With any luck, it is because it's really cool. Oh, that one's not quite completed. All right, I know that you with the crooked horn is. Let me find that. Let's try this. Yeah, Andy hates finale. Yeah, so here you go, guys. So this is the result of, um, of us being able to do it in finale. Um, is that we can, uh, we can, not only are we composing sort of together and keeping it organized, but when everything's ready, it's as simple as printing this baby out to PDF. And uh, Eagle even puts like this, like the little dancing feet pictures. Yay! Uh, <laughs> which is what it is. But you can sort of see we have this band score ready, which is kind of cool. Someday we're going to publish all of the stuff that we've done. Um, in the meantime, uh, in the meantime, we have this band score. And people who are familiar with Finale know that when it, when it comes to just extracting the individual parts, you can just do that in Finale. Extract, part, go. And Sandra says, it takes just as much time to memorize the flourishing and beating for the tenor, especially if there are several tenors. Yes, you're totally right about that. So we can get these band scores out pretty quickly. Um, and then the, the flourishing is up to our lead tenor, who um, her name is Lauren Heal. And um, so she's in charge of splitting things up and making them look really cool. And of course, you know, Mike Eagle provides some input there. Uh, but that's how we get all the music up and going. Alrighty. Cool. Uh, I'll go back to my main screen here. Next topic. Well, we sort of we're sort of already into the next topic, which is how to present the material to the group. Uh, we're big advocates of presenting it in a nice, as polished as possible way using Finale. Uh, but regardless, you need to have a plan as to how you're going to present it. Here's one of the big challenges I have. Uh, one of the big challenges I have is changes. When you make changes and you send them out, and uh, only half the band gets the memo, and then the other half has, um, and then the other half has old copies of the music, and they're not up to date. That could be a big problem. So you have to have some sort of method for presenting the material and presenting any changes, and then getting rid of the old stuff. Okay, um, I think one one way you could innovate that is to make sure you have version numbers on all of your scores. Okay, so, um, you know, just kind of like Windows does. Make sure everything you send out to the band, piping, drumming, tenor drumming, flourishing, make sure it all has a version number. So you can say, hey, everyone's got the right version number, right? Everyone should throw out all previous version numbers because that organization of music can be a real pain too. Gary says a date, yep. You can date the versions as well. That's fine. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, Andy writes in, Often, bands struggle to write their own scores rather than finding someone to write them for them. And that is a good observation. Um, I think it's very rare that an ensemble also... I'm, I'm thinking about this statement before I throw it out there. Uh, I would say most musical ensembles, it's not normal for them to write their own material. Think about that for a second. So I suppose singer-songwriters, they write their own material. But if you look at pop music, most of the time they're presented with the material. They, they have writers that do that. In orchestras, obviously, um, their composers compose it and the performers perform it. And in most other ensembles, um, the music is sort of written and presented by some sort of composing figure. Yet, drum corps always, or uh, let's, let's just say all too often, drum corps are very concerned with their own unique, perfect drum scores uh, that they first have to write before the core can even work on playing them. And I just think that, uh, you know, I think where I'm going with this is, yeah, you sh it's absolutely appropriate to commission a composer outside of your group to write music for you. Exactly. Uh, and Andy, I mean, I think what you're leaning towards there is to have... Um, uh, a consultant that comes in with the group, writes music for them, and also works with the group to make sure the music is uh, executed well and that any changes that need to be made can be made by that outside bias source. Yeah. Andy, I'm with you 100% there. Right. And it'll, <laughs> it'll help the judges' scores quite a bit as well. You're absolutely right about that, and, and that's fairly common, especially um, you know in our part of the world, is uh, to have consulting drummers. I think that uh, even at the very least, to commission someone else to write music is good. I think that's a good thing. Pipers do it inherently all the time. I mean, we basically commission uh, Donald McLeod and G.S. McLennan, you know, in sort of a weird way. I mean, we're drawing from their influence and their tunes so so often. And I think that's good. You know, there's an element of the familiar there. Very, very few man hours are required to take a famous tune and make it into something that we can play. Um, and drum scores are a little bit different. However, you know, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of using some of Alec Duthert's ideas. Okay, and a lot of times they have to be simplified, but Alec Duffett was a prolific composer, and you know I think it's cool to sort of commission his work, for lack of a better word, or to commission someone to use that influence to create cool scores. That's sort of what happens to me, it seems, in my opinion. As a lot of people are working to replicate that sort of style. Certainly key elements of it are, are replicated by pretty much everyone universally at this point. And there are other influences, too. Uh, but Andy, I'm totally with you there. As far as, um, especially if you're, you know, if you're in a band where you're still working to develop your playing fundamentals, it's impractical to try to add compositional chops on top of that. You know, focus on developing and then 
as you get better and better and better, you can do more and more in terms of creating your own music if you wish. Anyone who's anyone in Python drumming today can trace their drumming lineage back to Alec Duffin. Uh, I think that statement is, yeah, definitely partially true. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say, um, I wouldn't, I, I would say everyone can at least trace it partially to Alec Duffin. Yeah. I'm not an I'm not an expert, but I would say that there are a lot there are many other influences too, um, which uh, that exist. Uh, but yeah, good. Let's entertain any uh, a few more minutes of conversation. Uh, but I think this has been a cool session. Um, yeah, and I'll just sort of elaborate. Uh, I'll try and try and explain what I'm thinking here with Andy's comment about Alec Duffett. Um, I don't. I don't think. Um, yeah, I don't think it's good to just say everyone traces back to Alec Duffett. I don't think that's really the case. I don't think Alec Duffett would be pleased with that either. Um, but I think we're certainly all influenced by him heavily. Um, and certainly, I think, I think it's his spirit and his approach of using outside influences. I think that really sort of sparked the new era of drumming. Is Alec Duffett, to my understanding, which is limited, you know, he, uh, he was influenced heavily by a variety of styles of drumming. And that allowed the score writing to just have way more depth and interest and musicality. And I think that's the main lesson most of us have learned from Alec Duffett, even though we may or may not have been directly influenced by that style. Roger says, Alec established the style. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's true. I think... Um, I think I think the sort of narrow, the narrow interpretation there is risky. I think he established the methodology, um, and I think some people were guilty of copying the style without embracing the methodology. I guess maybe that's that's um, that's the argument I'm going to put out there. Just like anything, <coughs> it's certainly a big issue in piping. Uh, for example, how do we interpret Nickel and Brown, the the, the famous Peabrock players? You know, do we copy the style, or do we embrace the methodology, or is there a delicate balance? That's the big argument. Ah, uh, yes, Steve. Determining the key of a tune is actually a pretty tricky thing to do. We do have classes on Dojo U about identifying the key, um, but basically, it's a key of uh, you know, the, the really quick and easy way is to figure out what note the tune begins and ends on. That's going to give you a really good indication of what, the, what key the tune is in. For example, Scott and the Brave begins and ends on low A. And so a quick way of determining the key of the tune is to say, well, in all likelihood, that tune is in the key of A. And then technically, we need to get into... Um, what the chord structure of the tune is. So we need to be able to identify the chords that are used, and, the, and then the chord that begins and ends each tune, which, by the way, the vast, vast majority of all pipe music will begin and end on the same uh, chord. It's called the tonic chord, okay, or the root chord. 
if we can identify that chord, that is the key. For example, um, uh, let's use Scott and the Brave again. The opening chord is A major. It uses a vast majority A, C's, and E's. That's the opening chord, and it's an A major chord. So the, that tune is in A major. It also ends on the same chord. I'm trying to think of another example. Um, Highland Laddie is in D major because it opens and closes. Uh, see, it, that, there's an exception right off the bat. That was a bad example. That actually opens on a D major chord and ends on a B minor chord. Steve, major versus minor is um, it requires a little bit of music theory knowledge. It has to do with the interval between the first and third note of the chord. If there are three semitones apart, it would be a minor interval, and if there were four semitones apart, it would be a major interval. Yep, Green Hills is in the key of A major because it uses primarily A's, C's, and E's at the beginning. It also resolves to the low A at the end. So, um, for those who are really interested in that, I highly recommend a Dojo U membership where we talk about identifying the key um, of tunes. Let's see here. Yeah, see, here's um, some stuff. Here's some stuff about major versus minor chords. Here's a music theory link. Uh, something, there must be something about key. Nope, I guess we don't have a specific thing there. Coming soon to Dojo U, Andrew teaches a class on keys. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can definitely, I would definitely be happy to do that. I am trying to see if maybe there's a class that I missed. Nope. No, I know Mark Saul taught a lot of that stuff, but his classes aren't in the That's archive. Right. Yeah. Did Chocolates else for the holidays. That sounds good, Andy. Well, uh, he may be gone already. Nope. Andy, thanks again for coming out and participating. And uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, that should be good um, for today. So let's see. And there's a lot of music theory stuff on YouTube as well. The only tricky stuff with generic music theory is sometimes it can be hard to figure out where the pipes fit into that, even though they do. Uh, there, there tends to be like, you know, a couple more barriers there. Um, but there we go. So, um, guys, let's wrap it up there. Good, uh, good discussion. Thanks so much for participating and keeping things interesting. And we will get this stuff um, posted up to the podcast page shortly. So thanks very much for coming. You're welcome, everybody.